Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. My co-host Jack Schneider is off doing whatever it is academics do during months that don't have an R in them, which means that the topic of today's episode was completely determined by me. I've been racing through a brand new book called Bad Blood, Secrets and Lies in a Silicon Valley Startup. It's by a Wall Street Journal investigative reporter named John Carreyrou, and I am not exaggerating when I say that it is unputdownable. And if you're wondering what the sordid saga of a blood testing company could possibly have to do with education, well, that is the subject of this episode. Take a listen to this clip from Good Morning America in 2015. This is when Theranos and its founder and CEO, Elizabeth Holmes, were riding high. See if you notice some familiar themes. At 19 years old, Elizabeth Holmes dropped out of Stanford. She had a little tuition money and a big idea. Now at 31, she's what lots of teenagers with that background likely strive to become. The youngest billionaire in the world. Is that heady when you hear that? You know, it's it's not what matters. Um, what matters is how well we do in trying to make people's lives better. I mean, that's that's why I'm doing this. That's why I work the way that I work, and that's why I love what I'm doing so much. What Holmes is doing is running Theranos, the biotech company she founded in 2003. Healthcare is the leading cause of bankruptcy. You'll see her either in a black turtleneck or a white lab coat taking a high-tech approach to blood testing. Instead of a needle to the arm, it's a pinprick to the finger. Holmes is marketing Theranos as a faster and cheaper alternative to a process that hasn't meaningfully changed in decades. As I read Bad Blood, it struck me that the story of the meteoric rise and implosion of Theranos is filled with parallels to the efforts to disrupt another industry, or space, as they call it in Silicon Valley, education. Writer John Warner had a similar thought. He writes a blog called Just Visiting for Inside Higher Ed, where he posted an excellent piece called The Theranos Story and Education Technology. John, I'm curious, you were reading a book about a blood testing startup in Silicon Valley. At what point in the story did you realize that bad blood could also be called bad ed tech or bad ed reform? You know, it was it was really pretty early on as I I started to make the connections between how Theranos was working within a particular market or culture of Silicon Valley and Silicon Valley investment culture and how education technology seems to work, which is there is a uh, disconnect between those who are ultimately going to use the technology or be affected by the technology and, and those who either buy or in the case of Theranos fund this work. And, uh, you know, Theranos didn't have any real medical experts of note <laughs> uh, uh, high up in the company. They had, they had engineers and people grinding away on this kind of fantasy device, but they didn't have anybody who really knew uh, the science of blood testing and engineering uh, working together. And in a lot of ways, I see education technology that way. I, I see things entering the education technology space 
that I, I look at and can think they've never spoken to a teacher. Any teacher would look at this and within seconds say, this is, this is a terrible idea. Well, as I as I read the book, and you know the the what you were just describing comes across in such a startling way that you have these really sort of you know intelligent, passionate people in the trenches, and um, and they start off you know they're they're captivated by the mission of this company, which is to to do away with the need for you know having a needle stuck in your vein, and instead they're going to run blood tests off of a single. Uh, drop of blood from from your finger, and you know they they start to see what's happening in the company, and they realize that you know like basically they don't have anything that that right. none of it none of it ever works. Um, the nanotainer, the the Edison device, none of it works. And as I was reading that, I thought about these big ambitious school reform efforts a la New Orleans and Washington, D.C., um, or even Atlanta, where um, when the wheels start to come off, the people in the trenches will say, yeah, we we tried to flag that there was something really wrong going on, but we were worried we were going to lose our jobs or we were, we mm-hmm. were afraid. Yeah, there's so much incentive for those people to not speak up and stay silent. Uh, in the case of Theranos, there was even sort of outright intimidation uh, and, and firings of those people. And I think, if memory serves, you saw some of that in Washington, D.C. during the uh, Michelle Rhee years where she was, uh, you know, she, she fired a, a principal on camera who, who she didn't think was getting with her program. And I think you're right. I think these patterns of sort of people on top who are so invested in the quote-unquote success of whatever it is they've promised uh, that they lose sight of what it is they're actually doing. And and the amazing thing about Theranos is that the thing was a literal fantasy. It, It had no connection with science or reality or anything that could happen. And I, I think this is probably true in some of those examples you said as well, uh, where, you know, where human beings are involved, things are going to be messy and difficult and hard to uh, come out exactly the way one would like. And so uh, once they sort of get out of that control and people double down on it, these these big, big big disasters happen like in Atlanta and D.C. and and other places. Holmes and Theranos got an incredible amount of fawning press coverage. And one of the amazing things that John Carreyrou recounts in the book is that at a certain point, the story gets so big that people with actual scientific knowledge and expertise start paying attention and asking the sort of very basic questions that no one had thought to ask because they were so focused on the fact that Holmes was a Stanford dropout who wore a black turtleneck. In other words, if people who knew stuff had been part of the conversation from the beginning, things would have turned out very differently. And you can tell where I'm going with this. This all feels very familiar. Uh, As I recall, it was they wanted to be able to test potassium levels from a pinprick, but when you um, use that blood, it ruptures the cells, which releases excess potassium, a process I think that's called hemolysis. Well, so aren't they you would generate, scientific? They would, they would uh, generate these readings that were literally inconsistent with life. So the, the 
potassium levels would be, well, okay, this person's dead. Their heart is stopped. And, and they hadn't been because they were simply faulty, faulty tests. Uh, and I, I think that kind of wishful thinking uh, against evidence, you know, is, is apparent in a lot of these things, including ed tech, uh, you know, the, the personalized learning movement, uh, which, uh, you know, was going to be the Netflix for education. I think we've now moved on to the Google Maps for education. Uh, there's no actual grounded theory under which these ideas are supportable. Uh, there's metaphor, Google Maps or Netflix, but there's there's nothing in the learning science uh, or history of learning or even sort of the philosophies of learning, you know, going back to like a John Dewey or a Maria Montessori uh, that would support any of these things. And yet millions and millions of dollars are plowed into it. Uh, and again, these things are going bust. I don't know if you saw... Uh, Larry Berger, who is of Amplify, who's one of the longest tenured personalized learning people out there, who basically said, uh, admitted the, the mapping model of personalized learning doesn't work because uh, we can't draw the map and we don't know how to place students on the map anyway. And even if you could place them on the map, we can't figure out how to motivate them to move somewhere else on the map. <laughs> Uh, which is a pretty stunning a stunning admission. I'm talking to writer John Warner about a new book called Bad Blood and its relevance for education. John, we've looked at some of the big thematic overlaps here, but I want to talk a bit about some surprising ways that fraudulent Silicon Valley blood startup land and edu land collide in this story. I'm thinking about our Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, who was a major investor in Theranos along with the Walton family. And DeVos, of course, is also a big backer of a chain of controversial brain retraining centers called NeuroCore. Just recently, a judge told the company it had to stop making sciencey sounding claims very much along the lines of what Theranos did. As a special treat, I'm going to play a clip from a NeuroCore ad. NeuroCore Brain Performance Centers assist individuals in optimizing their brain function. Based in West Michigan, the company has been around for over 10 years, using advanced computer technology to help its patients in many ways. We do that for people with clinical things like ADHD, anxiety, and sleep, but we also do a lot of work with professional athletes. We have a contract with the Orlando Magic. We work with all their players. We do a lot of draft testing to analyze the brain and how it works so that when you're making a pick, you're making the right pick at the right time. NeuroCore especially believes in its ability to get athletes in the zone. The brain is really the greatest commodity when it comes to whatever we do, but especially sports, because your brain has to be working perfectly under pressure situations. That stuff, uh, the, the brain training, I mean, sort of if you ask any learning scientist or any neuroscientist or anybody, they will tell you that that stuff is almost certainly nonsense. Uh, and what it is is something that you can sell to the public as a possible benefit because we are hungry for those sorts of things. We would like to believe that we can um, retrain our brains or solve our problems with these sorts of sorts of fixes. Uh, but it comes out of a mentality where, and I think this is similar to how Theranos was able to draw so much investment 
which is as long as you can convince somebody to buy it, uh, it must work or it must be good. Because uh, Theranos had contracts with uh, Walgreens and with Safeway and uh, could boast and say, we're going to put these in these places. And, and it looked sort of real. So you get people like Betsy DeVos and the Waltons and Rupert Murdoch, who I, I think it was he invested $150 million in Theranos and ended up writing off all but a dollar of it as a loss. Uh, their, their money, their influence, their power sort of insulates them from the consequence of these bad decisions. Uh, Rupert Murdoch, despite investing $150 million, didn't lose a dime. Uh, because we have tax laws that protect them from that. Uh, Betsy DeVos will continue to get rich on her fake brain training uh, business, and I'm sure she would like to figure out how to get you know, uh, federal funds uh, to be able to use for it. There's, there's sort of no, there's no internal uh, ethics or scruples that will restrain some of these people from simply taking advantage of, of, the the money that's available for them to hoover up and use to their own devices. I'm sorry, that sounds so cynical. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a good time to be cynical because next we're headed to Arizona, land of little regulation. That's where Theranos went when it decided that it was ready to try out its blood testing experiment, which did not work on actual humans. It's the creepiest part of the story. And I thought once again about our Secretary of Education and the anti-regulatory zeal that really animates her. One of her top advisors is a guy named Robert Idle. He ran a very scammy online teacher education program. And when the program lost its accreditation, I can never say that, accreditation, the response of Idle and the other execs at Bridgepoint Education was not to, you know, figure out how to fix it and, you know, make it better, but to move it to Arizona because it is a state seemingly with no regulations at all. It's the sort of, it's it's a mentality that centers markets uh, as a solution to um, these problems. And if one market is hostile, you move to another. Uh, the best markets are the sort of least restrained ones, um, at least in Betsy DeVos's worldview. Uh, and... Education and, and learning, you know, the the proposal to merge the Department of Education and Department of Labor. This this has nothing to do with education. Uh, it, it's a it's a purely sort of instrumentalist point of view. Like, well, we're we're training people for work, so they can they can fulfill their their imperative to be capitalists. And uh, yeah, you know, if you can get a credential from a scam, but the credential allows you to get a job. Who cares? It's a, it's, you got the job and it's, uh, you know, I, I think Betsy DeVos has put this stuff in greater relief than it was before. And certainly she is, uh, worse than what preceded her, but the mentality of markets as a solution to, uh, what ails education is not, at least in my opinion, is not new to Betsy DeVos. She is a, a sort of ratcheting up of, of forces that um, have been have been present in a bipartisan fashion for quite a long time. Uh, she's just she's just just worse, uh, but not wholly different. 
Stanford figures prominently in the Theranos story, starting, of course, with the fact that it's the school that Elizabeth Holmes dropped out of. But one part of Stanford plays a particularly outsized role, and that's the conservative research firm known as the Hoover Institution. Six big shots with Hoover ties ended up on the Theranos board, including George Schultz and Henry Kissinger. But what I kept thinking about was the fact that Hoover was also the place where the dream of restructuring our schools along free market lines really gets its start. John Chubb and Terry Moe, who wrote Politics, Markets, and America's Schools, were Hoover fellows as well. And I'm curious, you know, what do you make of all of this clubbiness? The book really kind of highlights... uh the incestual nature of a lot of these things. There really are not a lot of people who are, who are um, in these areas who are uh, uh, wrestling around with these things. I can't remember the guy's name now, but he was essentially a neighbor of Elizabeth Holmes's family who was also involved in this sort of stuff and ends up suing Theranos because he, he, uh, files this sort of patent claim just because he he thinks she's infringing on his territory. Uh, uh, she gets a lot of mileage simply out of being a Stanford dropout, uh, as though this is a credential worth um, sub, you know worth uh, enhancing her credibility that she's a college dropout from an elite place, uh, and uh, you know the the. The George Schultz and James Mattis stuff, in in a way, is sort of um, boy. I don't know. My emotions are complicated. I felt sad at times for him. Uh, here's a here's an elderly man who really is just he's being terribly snowed uh, by by a con, um, and is and is willing to listen to Elizabeth Holmes over his own grandson uh, Tyler Schultz, who, as you know, played a big role in and ultimately blowing the whistle on it. Uh, and, and it, it, you know, I think it reinforces something that's true in a lot of parts are, of our culture, that power really is uh, not widely distributed. Uh, money does make these things go round. I think this is very true in education. I think as well-meaning as Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg may be, they have such an outside influence on these things that uh, Almost nothing is going to happen unless you sort of find favor with with um, those people who can who can fund your work, and I think that's been true of, for a long time. There are a number of people who fare really badly in the Theranos saga, and one of them is Democratic super lawyer David Boies. People may remember him from his role as the lead lawyer for Democrats in Bush v. Gore. That was the first time that I ever heard of him. But we encounter him in this story in a different role. He's basically menacing anyone who tries to blow the whistle on what's happening at Theranos. And I couldn't help but recall that this was all happening at the very same time that boys had agreed to take the lead in an effort to eliminate tenure for teachers across the country. He's running cover for Harvey Weinstein uh, at the same time. I think even I can't, I'm not 100% positive of this, but I think even using some of the same, uh, at least tactics, if not people, to spy on uh, and, and uh, harass some of the Theranos whistleblowers. Uh, and it, it's, 
Uh, I, I too, my, my introduction to David Boys was, was uh, Bush v. Gore, and you think of him as a sort of liberal uh, lion, and, and uh, you know, with, uh, with Theodore Olson, he, he was co-counsel uh, on uh, cases for uh, ultimately legalizing same-sex marriage, but then you realize uh, underneath there's sort of this, uh, I, I don't know, a, a a um, fascination with power or influence. Um, it's really, uh, there's a lot of evil wrapped up in the Theranos story. I, I think, you know, having having read the book, I, I think almost certainly Elizabeth Holmes did things that are criminal and likely deserves to go to jail. Uh, but plenty of boys' actions skirt legality in terms of intimidating uh, and harassing witnesses and surveilling private citizens, and uh, you know, here's a, here's a guy who who in in many corners of kind of at least liberal America would would have been called or thought of as as a as a hero, uh, even though he did lose Bush versus Gore. But uh, they would have thought he he's a guy who who holds on to uh, at least liberal, if not progressive, principles, and it's 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 just it's not the case uh it's not the case at all the theranos story just took yet another dramatic turn a few weeks ago elizabeth holmes was indicted by a grand jury for criminal wire fraud there's a great scene in bad blood towards the end where the wheels are coming off and holmes is really on the defensive and she makes a very familiar sounding argument that she was trying to revolutionize an industry and entrenched interest defending the status quo would stop at nothing to keep her from succeeding where have i heard this before well, sure. I mean, it's it's you know at this point a very very old playbook in, in education, particularly education reform, which I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say for decades has really treated teachers as a problem uh, to be solved. Um, and, and I am guardedly hopeful would be the wrong word. I'm guardedly. Uh, a little bit optimistic that this is starting to change as so many of these reforms attempts have just simply failed, uh, including the Gates Foundation most recent report on their their $500 million teacher evaluation program that showed no effects, uh, which of course they wouldn't because they were ignoring kind of the realities of schools, its social spaces, of teachers who respond to things like uh, sense of mission and collaboration and working with students rather than a couple of thousand dollars of cash, uh, and it's it's a it's a kind of very very old story. These these groups that think they know better. Uh, obviously, the people who are uh, in the trenches are the ones holding it back, and in a lot of cases in school reform, that includes students. It's the students who are defective somehow. Uh, and they don't listen, and it goes on for many, many years uh, until something breaks the fever, and then we see a little bit of reconsideration. But unfortunately, then we just kind of see a, a retrenchment of the of the uh, same attitudes, maybe in a little bit of a different package. I don't know. Do you do you have any hopes on these fronts, or are you uh, do you think we're going to be destined to repeat these cycles over and over again? Well. 
like you, I I feel like the sort of the the defeats are really piling up, and they're not the sort of Theranos style flameouts. It's more that right. the the verdicts of a whole lot of these experiments are all sort of coming due at the same time. And what was refreshing about that Gates report was that they did commission this big study. And um, whereas in, in these sort of city level experiments like New Orleans and Oakland, California, where, you know, like the whole idea has been that if you just keep adding new schools to the ecosystem, all the bad old schools will close and then, you know, all the kids will be in high performing seats. And the fact that this isn't working out as planned at all does not seem to have slowed the mission. Yeah, it's in a lot of those cases. I think it's a, it's a, you know, when the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Um, and 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 the kind of societal, broad societal unwillingness to grapple with what uh, I think you and I and probably a lot of your listeners understand is the underlying realities of what's going on in these districts, uh, where opening schools are not going to solve issues of poverty and resources and segregation and and these sorts of things. And in fact, uh, I think there, we've seen some recent charter school studies that show these, it, they may be exacerbating the underlying problems. Uh, so hopefully, hopefully this, this gets through eventually. I, 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 I don't think we, we have much chance if they don't, to be honest. That was John Warner. He writes a blog called Just Visiting for Inside Higher Ed. And he's also the author of a weekly column for the Chicago Tribune, where he often makes recommendations for what we should be reading. If you're one of our Patreon supporters, you're in for a special treat. I've asked John to let us in on some of his favorite recent books. And if you want to get in on the fun, all you have to do is go to patreon.com, search for Have You Heard, and a small donation will help us keep the pod going and get you all sorts of exciting extras. Wouldn't that be good pitching a product in Silicon Valley? Until next time, I'm Jennifer Berkshire, and thanks for listening to Have You Heard. 